Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Good Friday to every one of you, wherever you may reside, whether it's in the United States or elsewhere around the world. I'm glad to be back on the air, and we will be discussing in this uh, podcast episode involving uh, Shays' Rebellion, the American Revolution's final battle. We're going to be discussing about um, going behind the scenes with oath-takers and leaders. You know, when I think of uh, someone taking an oath, I often think of uh, the President of the United States when, um, when on uh, J- every January 20th, every four years, uh, the President, uh, whether he is reelected or a new President is sworn in, they take an oath. And that oath is to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States to the best of his ability. Well, taking an oath is it's basically it's a commitment it's a commitment that you will um, stick to something through the best of times as well as through the worst of times in Shays's rebellion it's fair to say that um, there was no such thing as the best of times on the other hand the only way I can describe the best of times based off of what we've learned about is that People who were disenfranchised um, still managed to see a light at the end of the tunnel by by um, sticking to a cause that they believed was right. Although in the eyes of the um, state leaders, they the state leaders knew that the rebellion um, was not to be tolerated. But of course, the state leaders were the ones who were probably far more ignorant than the um, rebellious um, individuals. On the other hand, with going behind the scenes and learning about the oath takers and the leaders, I think we ought to be reminded that just because there are rebels, we should keep in mind that the term rebel alone is a vague term. Perhaps we should be reminded that um, rebels are not always confined to the lowest ranks of society. So our first leadoff question will be the following. <clears throat> Did anyone get sent to the gallows to be hanged for their part in Shays' rebellion? I'll give you a couple of choices. Choice A is more than five. Choice B, less than five people, that is. Choice C, 20 or more people. Choice D, zero. The answer is choice B, less than five people. Matter of fact, only two people got hung for their involvement in Shays' rebellion. Well, you know, I would have thought uh, that more than uh, two people would have gotten hung for their for their. Um, part in the rebellion, although it was smart on um, newly elected John Hancock's part to not issue as many hangings. And the reason why he believed that is because if more people were hung, it would have led to further chaos, further unrest, more bouts of extreme violence in terms of uprisings. So, for John Hancock, or I should say rather Governor John Hancock, his primary focus now 
is to restore order to Massachusetts, but to try and do, but to try to do so in, in every way nonviolent as possible. Restoring order is a daunting task unto itself, and there is a right way of doing it, and of course there is a wrong way, but John Hancock, while he may not be 100% perfect himself, he is a, um, he's a, um, a new source of uh, hope, perhaps, for, um, for, what do you call it, for evening um, whatever existing gaps there are between the haves and the have-nots. Um, it sounds like to me that John Hancock, or Governor Hancock, rather, is perhaps more of a moderate governor. In other words, he's not going to always side with the elite. He may not always side with the um, opposite, but he's going to find, um, hopefully he will find ways to side with both parties and try to come up with some better compromises to where uh, those who were um, labeled as have-nots under Governor Bowden's eyes will feel more welcomed into the um, Massachusetts uh, society in terms of overall um, abilities to have greater participation. So in the aftermath of Shays' rebellion, the rebellion itself resulted in several hundred indictments. So there were people who were indicted, a lot of people that was, but only two people got hung. But there were roughly close to 4,000 confessions of wrongdoing. Does anybody know what amnesty means, just out of curiosity? Mass pardon. It's one thing to issue a pardon to an individual, but when you issue a pardon or a series of pardons to a large group of people whom were involved in, um, in an action or, or a series of activities like this one, and they had shown uh, remorse for their actions, they had um, turned over their um, weapons or their arms to the state, they um, took an oath to be allegiant to... Um, to um, say that they had um, allegiance to the state. That was their uh, way of not only confessing to their uh, wrongdoings by uh, turning over their arms and um, renewing their um, vows, that is, their um, promises not to uh, repeat those same actions again. So there again, John, Governor John Hancock was probably smart enough, smart to where if he knew that, say, more than 100 people got hung, uh, it only would have led to further uh, violence and unrest in uh, greater Massachusetts. Do leaders, here's our next question, folks, do leaders of rebellious movements always share a lot in common with rank-and-file members from within their groups? We all would like to believe that leaders share the same feelings or have the same level of empathy and concern as the followers below their uh, sole leader or their um, individual leaders, rather, would share? The answer is no. Uh, leaders of any movement can always say things to entice others to join, but it doesn't mean everyone is on the same page. I've even found this to be true um, in having watched documentaries uh, on um, cults, and cults have been around for a long time, not to get off track here, but um, history has shown that um, 
cult leaders as sick as they are, like David, like David Koresh was, uh, Jim Jones from Jonestown. Um, for those of you who weren't familiar with David Koresh, that was about uh, uh, the incident took place back in the early 90s, but he had uh, been the leader of the Branch uh, Davidians uh, for some time. But these cult leaders would find ways to brainwash their uh, followers to the point where the followers submitted without um, without uh, putting up a fight. In other words, it it's one thing to want to join something or, or belong to something because you're not sure where you fit into society, but once you submit to someone above you who... Um, who uh, demonstrates complete control not only over yourself but over others in a group, then you have pretty much surrendered your state of well-being to that person above you just so that they can fulfill their own needs. So we just we should keep in mind that uh, just because one is a leader of a movement, it doesn't mean that his that the people below him or her are going to always agree with everything the leader himself him or herself does and long long story short um, there were those in the branch davidian um, cult uh, sect whom were um, who had joined david koresh's following whom over time did find um, did see the light at the end of the tunnel and there were those who uh, defected and realized that they had um, pretty much endangered their well-being but were smart and were smart enough to get out of it before it was too late. Uh, sadly, there were a lot of people whom lost their lives in, back in 1993 um, in the end um, because of what David Koresh um, had done to them. So what we're going to focus on now, folks, is um, a, a particular man whom we discussed briefly uh, from the previous podcast he is a leader just like Daniel Shays was. He is an interesting uh, study. His name is Luke Day. He is up there with Daniel Shays and being with uh, with regards to uh, military status. Of course, Daniel Shays Daniel Shays rather um, had to work from the bottom to the top. Um, in other words, he didn't come from a privileged background to to earn his um, rank and file status overnight. He pretty much had to start from bottom to top. But Luke Day, um, it turns out that he is one of West Springfield's most prominent families. He, he is a member of, of one of West Springfield's prominent families, rather, I should say. And uh, this is in Western Massachusetts. So let's keep in mind, folks, that even in Western Massachusetts, there are people um, whom reside there who are at the top of uh, society, but at the same time, they still don't get the full uh, respect and attention from uh, those living in Boston who are who make up that uh, mercantile economy um, status that, in the eyes of many, is probably seen as being more valuable than, say, someone living in Western Massachusetts who owns a hundred acres or more of uh, property. Uh, but, anyways, uh, Luke Day uh, being belonging to uh, one of West Springfield's most prominent families, his rise to fame arose from having served in the Revolutionary War, which saw him present from the start of the war up until the time uh, the war itself officially ended in 1783. 
So basically, Luke Day has been involved in the war itself for the last eight to nine years, from start to finish. It's safe to say that he has seen um, the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, but through it all, he managed to see um, America achieve the unthinkable, and that and that is that not only did they just declare their separation from England based off of a document being the Declaration of Independence, they actually defeated the world's mightiest empire in, in uh, open field combat. They actually defeated them in battle, not overnight, but through eight years, eight to nine years of turmoil, up and down, they were able to do the unthinkable. They turned the world upside down. As the Revolutionary War drew to an end, what exclusive organization did Luke Day, whom was already of officer ranking status, join? This is something that I believe most people don't know about, so I'm here to tell you all about it. it is, it's an organization that even still exists to this day. So if this organization was established in 1783, folks, that means the organization itself is 238 years old. So I'll give you a couple of choices as to what organization this could be. Choice A, was it the Society of the Cincinnati? Choice B, was it the uh, Sons of the American Revolution? Or choice C, none of the above? The answer is the Society of the Cincinnati, which didn't um, just originate overnight, but it did officially become an established organization on May 13th, 1783, just a few months before the Treaty of Paris took place, which officially ended the American Revolutionary War altogether. Interesting enough, folks, uh, the Society of the Cincinnati's Roots, in other words, the, the organization itself, its roots, could, were traced as far back as 1776, the same year that we officially declared our separation from England. And who do you believe would have been the chief proponent behind an organization like this? Choice A, is it George Washington? Choice B, is it Marquis de Lafayette? Choice C, was it Henry Knox? Or choice D, Nathaniel Green? The answer is choice C, Henry Knox. He was the chief architect or proponent behind uh, the organization's uh, setup, that is the Society of the Cincinnati, he firmly believed that American officers ought to be receiving the same pension like retired British officers, that is, half pay for life. So, two years later in 1778, George Washington goes before the Continental Congress to support, he urges them to support the half pay pension plan for the sake of the greater war cause effort. You know, even for George Washington, who would go on to become the father of our country, even George Washington wasn't immune from criticism, especially in the early years of the American Revolutionary War. 
there were a handful of men folks in Congress who, after 1775, felt that maybe Washington needed to be replaced, especially after the debacle at New York, uh, most notably Long Island, Kipps Bay, um, Brooklyn Heights. The American forces had just suffered one humiliating defeat after another, and Washington and his men were forced to go to retreat as far south as um, into uh, New Jersey, or rather into Pennsylvania, I should say. And of course, long story short, Washington only has about 2,400 men going into late, uh, by late September 1776. Um, he knows that, you know, winter's only a couple of months away and desertions are already happening left and right. Men are leaving. They are disgruntled. Uh, the Declaration of Independence alone, while, yes, 56 men signed the document declaring their separation from England, the document itself doesn't have really any value because we have not been able to prove to our own people that we are capable of going head-to-toe with the mightiest empire in the world, although there was the exception at Lexington and, and Concord and uh, Bunker Hill, but that was but that folks was a year before we had um, officially declared separation. So in the end, a, an informant, whom was a double spy, not only for the British but also for the Americans, a fellow man by the name of John Honeyman, basically gave George Washington the perfect gift. In other words, he gave Washington the opportunity to do the unthinkable, and that was to catch the Hessians, whom were uh, mercenaries uh, under uh, the British Empire from Germany. Washington and his forces on Christmas night of 1776 did the unthinkable by, um, by um, sailing across the Delaware River, not with sailboats, folks, but by... Um, Durham boats that were used most notably from um, the Marbleheaders from uh, Marblehead, Massachusetts, whom were known as the Indis Indispensables, whom helped guide Washington's forces back and forth along the Delaware River, because not everyone would have left at the same time. But in the end, folks, Washington's men did the unthinkable. They captured 900 Hessians. They did not lose a single man. And the cause itself was saved. In other words, the cause for independence still had a light at the end of the tunnel that could be um, guided, even when we were going through the lowest of lows. So the bottom line is this, folks. Even in the early years of this conflict, in the American Revolution, there were men who did not believe Washington was no longer capable but even in a few short years after Trenton and Princeton, those battles, Washington is still having to go to great pains to Congress, not only to prove that he is still the right person for the job, but to get members of Congress to continuously support this effort. So just when we think we've been unified this whole time, folks, we have to remind ourselves that um, unity is fragile upon itself. Was the Society of the Cincinnati an open organization? No. This organization catered only to officers 
of the Continental Line and their firstborn sons. Membership was confined to hereditary status revolving around primogeniture. The firstborn son, whom would be the primary inheritor of his family's estate, most notably inheriting what his father would leave behind should he pass away. Primogeniture, as I've said it before, I could say it again, it, it was a big um, uh, practice for those from the um, aristocratic uh, families of Virginia. And then when Thomas Jefferson became governor in 1779, he, um, along with the General Assembly, go about um, abolishing primogeniture around the time that he was governor. So the organization, um, the Society of the Cincinnati, I'm sure many of you all are wondering, whom, how did this organization get named, um, get named uh, Society of the Cincinnati? Well, the organization was named after a Roman general whose name was Cincinnatus, whom, like George Washington, was also a farmer, left his land to lead fellow countrymen to military victory. Washington, yes, was a farmer. As a matter of fact, after um, the shots were heard um, around the world from Lexington and Concord, Washington himself knew that he needed to um, defend his country. He knew that he needed to uh, put aside his passions for farming and instead take up a greater cause. Cincinnatus was the same way, too. You know, there is a, a city in Ohio named Cincinnati, Ohio. It's named after that fellow, Cincinnatus. There is a small little uh, village in uh, New York State in the central part of the state, just on the outskirts of Syracuse, known as Cincinnatus. There is also a place, there are also a couple of other places in the greater Syracuse area known as uh, Rome, uh, Hannibal, Carthage. So, you know, the Romans, yes, you know, being in Europe and all that, but it doesn't mean that their influence, that the ancient Roman civilization still was able to um, have some kind of influence in the years um, in years later on down the road, most notably um, in the 18th century as we are in the post-revolutionary war era with an organization um, that honors a Roman, a, um, an incredible Roman um, leader who had the same qualities as George Washington who became the father of our country. It's probably fair to say that even Cincinnatus himself could have been labeled father of his country. By joining the Society of the Cincinnati, did Luke Day hope to benefit greatly? Yes. He hoped to get special treatment from either the state of Massachusetts or the, na or the national government after war's end. And, you know... It was one thing to be a member of this organization, but even members of the Society of Cincinnati late lobbied very hard for land, titles, and pensions. So just because you joined, folks, it didn't mean that you got the same kind of membership package like everyone else. Uh, yes, it may be it was one thing to belong to an organization, but it's like in today's time, if you're going to belong to something, you better be able to pay your dues right away. Because if you can't, then you got to ask yourself, do I really have the money to join this organization? And secondly, um, if I can't join now, I may just have to wait and do it at another time. Here's a question I want you all to think long and hard about. Was it expensive to become an officer in Washington's army? 
Yes or no? The answer is yes. And why, why was that, folks? Well, George Washington wanted his officers to be more like European officers. After all, folks, you know, European officers uh, expected their subordinates, being the privates and uh, other officers with lower ranks below the higher ones, to, um, to respect uh, their superiors, to obey, to, to be, when they were told to do something, they better follow up on the, on the commands from above. And when all that happens, you have a better sense of structure from within an organization. Otherwise, if there's no structure, then how can the organization itself go about um, instituting any kind of order from the ranks below, but also go about properly protecting the people of the country? So for George Washington, an officer in his eyes represented part of a greater superior order. Did Luke Day as an officer get paid during the Revolutionary War? Yes, but not consistently. And when he got paid in notes, there was minimal value, which resulted in depreciation, loss of face value. So, you know, remember folks, as I've said before, paper money does not have the same value as um, something like silver. Silver will always be in its um, uniform shape. If you have silver and, and you take a coin and you cut it into eighths, you only use one eighth of the coin, or of the full coin, guess what? You still have seven eighths of it left, so your coin still retains long-term value. Your paper note may be worth, some, may be worth um, a decent price today, but come tomorrow, uh, your that money could lose value, and you never know how much value it could lose because that market with paper money fluctuates rapidly. So I could see how banks, even in the early days of the Republic, not to get too far ahead, but even in the early days, banks were reluctant to produce a lot of paper money for numerous economic reasons. Although Luke Day and his family were the largest landowners from West Springfield, being at one time in the top 5% of town taxpayers, did things begin to change drastically for the family? Yes. And how? when did things change drastically for the days? During the, the American Revolutionary War. How so? Well, for starters... The demand for farm goods soared, and the longer the war progressed, Luke Day continued to remain um, away from his family because he was uh, serving a greater cause, which his, fam which his family would have wanted him doing. But as farm goods soar, is it fair to say that, um, that, the, uh, that his family's farm property holdings, or just property holdings in general, drop. Absolutely. So instead of being in the 5% uh, tier, his family's property drops to where they are in the, what we might say, the second tier being 20% uh, property holders. The Day family was simply unable to retain, uh, to attain resources, or let alone goods, to meet rising farm costs 
and before the war, they were paying under three pounds in taxes. But during the war, that was uh, 12 pounds in taxes. Talk about a um, drastic, um, what do you call it, a drastic uh, fluctuation uh, turn. You're paying, you're not paying a whole lot in taxes, uh, three pounds before the war, and then come the war, not just the start of the war, but um, even during the long-term duration of the war, you're paying 12 pounds in taxes. Yeah, that's a huge um, fluctuation. And I don't believe that even some families, even who were uh, the, like the days who were well-to-do uh, property land holders, it's probably fair to say that many of those, some of those families didn't recover. Were Luke Day's finances in total disarray after the Revolutionary War ended? Yes. He still owed money to multiple people and never was able to to pay them back in full, resulting in his being in prison for debt at Northampton Jail. For those who uh, couldn't pay their debts off, they folks, they would get sent to what we would call debtor's prisons. And they stayed there until they could pay the debt off. On the other hand, um, if family members were able to uh, raise money to pay off the debts, then there would have been a greater likelihood that the debtor himself, who was in jail, would have been able to have uh, gotten out sooner versus later. Now, I should point out that the uh, practice for debt imprisonment had been in place throughout Massachusetts well before Luke Day and Daniel Shays were born. Prior to Luke Day's imprisonment, the process or let alone practice for debt imprisonment, dated back to the time that the Puritans were in control of the state. You know, the Puritans, um, you know, you, there were the pilgrims that came over, and then you have the Puritans. Uh, the Puritans wanted to um, reform the Church of England from within, whereas the pilgrims wanted total separation from the Church of England. Puritan lawmakers just so that you all have a little 101 information on what the Puritans, uh, how the Puritans viewed debt. Puritan lawmakers saw debt linked to high living, wasteful spending. Basically, these um, individuals had little sympathy for debtors. Well, you know, I had read somewhere, and this is very true, the wealthy were always um, capable of being able to show off their uh, materials, their valuables, to those within their inner circle or to those below them. However, many wealthy um, individuals, while they had the goods to show off their stuff, many of them lacked the means to know how to go about paying their debts off in a timely manner. So in other words, uh, like in Virginia, for example, you had what was called the plantation aristocracy or the planter aristocracy. They acquired goods left and right like there was no tomorrow. Of course, they were in that wealthy 1% to 2% of society, but yet they amassed fortunes of debt to, to the point where 
they seem to always get an extension or an exemption from debt. So I think what we're going to find out here soon, folks, is this, or maybe I should just tell you now. It's one thing to have belonged to the Society of the Cincinnati, like Luke Day did, but did Luke Day have a job as well? No, he could no, he didn't. So joining the organization was one thing, but to have a job and to be able to pay your dues, not just your dues, but how about money that can go towards with the job that could go towards paying outstanding debts? So no wonder Luke Day um, ran into trouble, folks. Did it cost to keep a debtor in jail going into the 1780s? Yes. The minimum cost was four shillings, six pence a week. Well, even here in the United States, it costs money to incarcerate a prisoner. I don't know how much money it costs, but it's it, I know it's a lot of money, so... In the early 1780s, to keep a debtor in jail at a minimum cost of uh, four shillings, six pence a week, that was a lot of money for its day and time. Gentlemen like Luke Day made up a great portion of the jail population, roughly one-fifth, or I should say 20%, versus the general population. So, how about that, folks? You know, we're, we're, we've been led to believe for all these years that those who were in debtors' uh, prisons were those who um, were of lower class status, those who simply just could not um, pay anything because they lacked um, the resources that, say, their counterparts from the, uh, wealthy, from the wealthiest of, um, of society could um, easily afford. But we should be reminded that those who were wealthy probably were the ones that had more financial troubles than those from uh, lower uh, ranks of society. Prior to 1786, had the Massachusetts legislature passed anything to better equip debtors? Okay, you know, hey, you know, debtors should be looked after. Wouldn't it be fair to say that debtors are not bad people? Not all debtors are. There are some who have... Um, inherited um, inherited some bad situations that they had no control over whom are struggling day by day to uh, do whatever it takes to get out of the mess that they inherited. But let's keep in mind that not again that not all those whom are in debt or whom are labeled as debtors are bad people. So what did the Massachusetts legislature do to help modify things for uh, debtors? For one, um, we should remember that these are temporary measures, but they are better than no measures. How about the Confession Act of 1782, which allowed a debtor to go before a justice of the peace and acknowledge his debt? Okay, I'm telling you, um, the Honorable um, Judge John Smith, that I am in debt and I have this much debt, but I'm also giving... Um, the creditor permission to take my property on the debt's due date. This avoided a court appearance as well as court costs. Another temporary measure in 1782 allowed the debtor to pay off his debt in personal property at appraised value versus in specie. Specie is another word for like hard 
money, like, you know, gold coin or silver. So, you know, hey, well, I'll give credit to the Massachusetts legislature right here. I mean, this is better than nothing. It, it may not be the most perfect, but it's a good start. So the Northampton jail is where Luke Day was confined to, and it turns out that six other debtors were confined to this jail also. Were any of Luke Day's cellmates gentlemen? I'll give you a number. Was it, well, first off, I'm going to say yes, but what is the number? Was it four? Was it three? Or was it two? The answer is two. Two of Luke Day's cellmates were of gentleman status. One was a, a fellow named Silas Wright of Northampton, and the other was John Morgan of Springfield. The other four were the Yeoman farmers. They were of a, rather, I should say, Yeoman farmer status. The prisoners, I should point this out, they didn't spend their entire day in jail. They were only confined to jail at night. So during the daytime hours, the prisoners were confined to all of downtown Northampton, meaning that they were doing various um, work-related projects throughout the um, town um, as a way to, um, you know, for one, keep them out of further trouble, and two, prevent any kind of uh, would-be uh, plan to, uh, say, escape out of prison. Because I would say the longer you kept a prisoner in the, um, in the jail cell during the day, perhaps the greater the likelihood there could be a plan hatched for a potential escape. So Luke Day spent uh, most of July, all of August, and half of September 1787 in, the, in Northampton working in town um, by day to sleeping in jail at night. On September 13th of 1787, he was released from jail for his first debt. But on the second debt, he ran away from jail and returned home to his family in West Springfield. Here's another question for you all. Was Luke Day the only gentleman whom challenged the state's authority? If, any, if, if we were to say yes, I would say something's not right with us. The answer is no. A handful of other gentlemen took up arms against the government to where authorities indicted 54 men for crimes against the state. That is 54 men of uh, gentleman status. So remember, folks, let's just continue to keep this in mind. Yes, one could be a gentleman and he could be a leader of a movement, but it doesn't mean that just because he's a gentleman that he's going to always play by the rules in a nice way. Even gentlemen do things in the eyes of others that um, can be seen as unbecoming, shocking, um, some, in some instances maybe scandalous, um, downright um, unacceptable. But hey, you know, you don't have to be a bad person to do bad things all the time. Even nice people do things that are very unbecoming as well. So it's a double-edged sword uh, regardless of what way you look at it. Luke Day wasn't the only war hero whom sided with rebels. It turns out, folks, that 30 officers of the Massachusetts line took up arms against the government and 19 were arrested. Besides Luke Day himself, 
two other Society of the Cincinnati members participated in Shays' rebellion. Okay, folks, um, you know, hey, we've got people who have now joined the Society of the Cincinnati, but even they aren't perfect themselves. Of course, no one's perfect. We all have our flaws, but hey, we've got more than one person whom belongs to the Society of the Cincinnati and is now participating and just participated in Shays' rebellion. Kind of reminds me now of what happened at the Capitol back on at the United States Capitol back on January sixth. I had to be reminded that um, that this uh, that the riot that took place wasn't confined to just the lowest ranks of society. There were retired police officers throughout the United States that showed up, or let alone police officers on active duty, meaning that they were still employed with their. Um, police departments in their respective um, hometown state, Uh, people who at one time served our country who took place in this uh, riot. So we should just be reminded, even in 1786, 1787, Shays' rebellion, folks, is not confined to just the lowest of, to the lowest ranks of society. This is a rebellion that um, had, that welcomed people from all groups. Um, As I mentioned earlier, 30 officers of the Massachusetts line, um, 54 men whom uh, were indicted for crimes against the state, whom were of gentleman status. It just goes to show you that people from all walks of life can participate in any kind of um, activity that can um, either make or break their reputation. So remember, rebellion, folks, is not confined to just the lowest of society's people. 1,800 Hampshire County men participated in Shays' rebellion, but interesting enough, between 1785 to 1786, only 90 men in all of Hampshire County got jailed for debt. It's an interesting number right there. You have a lot of men participating in a rebellion, but Less than a hundred of those men got jailed for debt. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about Daniel Shays. I know we talked about him some uh, from the previous uh, podcast, but he's still not forgotten. But I think it's also good to talk about other people like Luke Day. How so? Because Shays' rebellion isn't confined to just Daniel Shays alone. Had Daniel Shays himself ever come across anything involving debt-related affairs? Yes. However, for starters, he never had any trouble when it came to borrowing money. He began acquiring land around the time he married, and by 1786, he bought five parcels totaling 251 acres and sold four parcels totaling 147 acres. So he has quite the means to access money and invest it and also sell whatever is necessary to get some kind of decent return back. However, during the the American Revolutionary War, you know, because Daniel Shays was involved in the war and he rose uh, from the ranks of sergeant to uh, colonel, Daniel Shays himself, during the American Revolutionary War, began running up small debts. Of course, you know, when we think of small debts, we don't think of them as the same as large debts. But 
small debts over time do become a problem. And if they're not taken care of, it will add to greater problems down the road. Because for many of these people, and even for our forefathers, a good number of them never really were able to escape debt in their lifetime. And not to get off track, but even Thomas Jefferson, whom is one of my favorite Virginians to learn about, Thomas Jefferson dealt with debt all of his entire adult life. He married into debt. He died into debt. As for Daniel Shays, as after the war ended, he had trouble paying off, um, paying uh, back his creditors. In 1784, he was sued by one of them, being John Johnson of Pelham, for 12 pounds. Remember, folks, uh, you know, we don't have uh, ATM machines at this time. <laughs> ATM machines, folks, being automated teller machines, don't even um, get introduced to the United States until the year 1967, just a little over 50 years ago. So remember, folks, even in, 17, in the 18th century, we don't have banks. You know, we can't just go to the bank and say, oh, I need to uh, withdraw $200 in cash so I can pay a debt off. No, um, 12 pounds, I'm not sure what the, the equivalent that is in terms of American dollars, but to be debt, to be in debt for, and to have 12 pounds of debt, yeah, that's a lot of money right there. The average middling family that I learned uh, once when visiting Colonial Williamsburg probably made about, their income was probably about 12 pounds a year. So for Daniel Shays to... Um, be in debt to John Johnson for 12 pounds, uh, that's the equivalent to the average um, middling um, family uh, who owns um, a decent size of uh, acreage in uh, Virginia. But it turns out that by 1786, Daniel Shays owed money to roughly 10 men. That's a lot of money to owe um, People. I mean, it's one thing to, to be in debt and owe money to three or five people, but to owe money to roughly ten people, that's a lot. True or false, for every, for every Shea site that is a follower of Daniel Shea's, for every Shea site who appeared in court as a debtor, would another Shea site show up as a creditor? True or false? True. It turns out that three out of the ten men whom Daniel Shays owed money to were rebels themselves whom were under indictment by the state when taking Daniel Shays to court. In other words, those three men um, had um, violated, I guess it's safe to say that, yes, by taking up arms against the state, that's what they were under indictment for. But at the same time, Daniel Shays owed them money. So... Let's keep in mind that creditors and debtors here are not strangers to one another. Creditors and debtors under Shays' rebellion, they all know each other, and they can't escape one another either. How many counties were impacted by the court shutdowns? I'll give you some choices here. Was it 10? Was it 7? Was it three or five? The answer is five. Five counties were impacted by all of the court shutdowns. However, 72 
out of 187 towns in the five-county area did not produce a single rebel. But the five towns that produced, but five towns produced more than 100 rebels, 12 towns produced between 51 to 100 rebels, 28 towns produced between 21 to 50. 40, these 45 towns made Shays' rebellion possible as they comprised four-fifths, a.k.a. 80% of rebel forces. So let's just keep in mind, folks, that not every town in Massachusetts, or let alone not every town in western Massachusetts, uh, contributed to Shays' rebellion. Only five counties, or roughly 45 towns, were what made the difference behind making Daniel Shays' rebellion a complete reality. What were some of the towns, what were the names of some of the towns that, um, that had a um, strong turnout um, behind Shays' rebellion? Colerain, Pelham, Waitley, Amherst, West Springfield, Shelburne, Monson, just to name a few. Our last question for this uh, podcast episode is going to be the following. Was heavy debt itself common throughout the backcountry in post-Revolutionary War era? Yes, the problems with debtors' issues weren't solely confined to Massachusetts farmers. But instead, people from backcountry regions like the Carolinas to elsewhere in New England all had similar issues. So debt alone, folks, is not confined to just one of the 13 colonies. I believe it's fair to say that all 13 colonies are not immune from debt. But some of our colonies seem to have experienced debt more rampant than others. Massachusetts, on the other hand, was different because its issues with their courts had been severely impacted dating back to 1774 when Parliament passed those infamous coercive acts, which we, which the uh, people in America referred to as the intolerable acts, most notably the people of Massachusetts. One of the measures behind those um, acts, or those series of acts, was uh, closing the courts and removing uh, justices whom wasn't so much that they sided with um, patriots, but were more um, open-minded. They showed impartiality. That is what we now call voir dire, the process of selecting an impartial jury. But under Parliament, with this, uh, with the uh, Coercive Act laws, uh, the new judges that came uh, before um, the Massachusetts courts were um, appointed by uh, the king, and those justices were um, loyal to the crown. So, and also, too, it doesn't help that uh, people become distrustful of the courts even as war goes on and as the war comes to an end. And we will talk about this in the next podcast. Massachusetts did not have a constitution from 1774 until 1780. So, when you don't have a state constitution to... um, to uh, go by in terms of how government 
in terms of uh, what checks and balances are to be allotted, then how could government itself function? So when I'm back on the air again next with you guys, I'm going to talk about um, the revolutionary government and its beneficiaries. Why would that pertain to Shays' rebellion? Well, we need to understand how the Constitution of Massachusetts was was imperfect. We need to understand how um, the term regulators came about. We need to understand how there were people who uh, weren't willing to uh, sit back and let uh, the elite stomp all over them to where only to where the rules or the um, the laws benefited a few and left everyone else, the majority, out in the dust to rot. Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, and I look forward to being back on the air again next time. And I hope all of you have um, learned a lot about Shays' rebellion. As I said before, I'd say it again. I learned some things about this um, historic event some years back, but after having read Leonard L. Richards' book, I've learned a lot more about Shays' rebellion. I was surprised to know that men like Samuel Adams had done a complete 360. But you know what? That's the beauty of history. Sometimes you learn things that you didn't think would happen, and yet when you do learn about them, you do get a better appreciation for why things were the way they were and, ho and would hope that... Um, mistakes that had happened from the past would not happen in the future. I would hope that um, all that's going on in the world now would someday come to an end and all the bad that is and hope that um, that somewhere down the road that better days would be ahead for all of us. But somehow I wonder if that would take an act of God uh, to happen. I'm not here to sound... Um, you know, sad or negative, but um, but we just don't know what the world, what to expect some days anymore, especially in this uh, turbulent world that we live in. Although our forefathers were not um, immune to uh, turbulence or conflict either, they lived through a lot of troubling times themselves. But I believe that if they were alive today, they would be appalled at all that has uh, gone on in the world today. Well, thank you for your time, and I look forward to being back on the air again as we learn more about Shays' Rebellion, the American Revolution's final battle. Take care and stay safe, and have a great weekend.